I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I remember well when the Reserve Bank was just a bond-selling agent of the Treasury. He would not be willing to reconsider the Greek program. A smaller-than-expected increase for consumer prices. That the United States economy added almost 5 million jobs. These numbers aren't anyone's opinions or political views. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, the world is living in fear of rising inflation and nuclear war, of course, but the inflation problem is much more likely. And if you believe Liz Truss, the UK Prime Minister, it's all down to Vladimir Putin anyway. But a bit of inflation is surely a good thing. If you've got debts, they diminish with inflation. The real issue is when central banks put up interest rates to try and control that inflation. That pushes our mortgages up and makes it more expensive for businesses to borrow. So which is the worst of two evils, inflation or central banks? And two questions today. Is there an optimum level for inflation? And should central banks just let it run its course, particularly when it's driven by supply shortages rather than a sudden increase in demand? That's this week on the podcast. Well, almost every central bank is fighting inflation right now, and they are fighting it the only way they know how, which is, of course, by pushing up interest rates. Let's see how that works out for us all, which are now at 3.75% in South Africa, 3% in the United States and New Zealand, 2.35% in Australia, 2.25% in the UK. Uh, most are aiming for a target rate of inflation of 2%. It looks like, you know, in, in some places, the infl- uh, the interest rates might get up to 4 5 maybe 6% to try and get down to that 2%, whether it can be achieved or not. But how did that 2% figure come about? Do you know the story behind this, uh, Steve? Because it actually came from, and if not, I can give you the, give you the story. It originally came from New Zealand. Have you heard this tale? No, uh, I might have, but tell me anyway. Well, so yeah. Don, so Don Brash was a uh, a kiwi fruit farmer who became the uh, the head of you know stereotypical uh, New Zealander, a kiwi fruit farmer who became the head of the central bank. This is 1988, and the story goes that in 1971 he'd sold an apple orchard and put that money into long term government bonds thinking that was going to finance his retirement, only to see it all wiped out by inflation. He only had about 10% left or something. So he saw the need to control inflation, and uh, so he wanted to make sure that that was put into law for the objectives of the central bank. And he said that they should keep inflation at 1% or less. Uh, But after a short while, it was seen that that was a bit too restrictive. You know, it just couldn't be done. So they upped it to 2%. And there we are. (laughs) And since then, every other central bank has had it as their target. Now, I think they might have tried to retrofit uh, the, you know, why 2% is the figure, but it really was that scientific, that 1% wasn't enough. So the reason I came across all of this was because I was watching Bloomberg a week or so back. Uh, Richard Clarida from the Fed, I'm not sure, is he? I think he might be an ex-Fed governor now. Um, Anyway, he was saying, ask why the 2% inflation target 
why not 2.5% or 3%? And he basically said, well, it could be. You know, we just have to get used to it. 2% is just a number. He said, but it's, it's the number because everyone followed New Zealand. <laughs> and there needs to be. And if you look at if you look at every central bank and look at their explanation, the only reason they're all giving for two percent is that there needs to be some expectation. You know that two percent is there so that people know what to expect, so they can plan for it. There doesn't seem to be anybody saying, "Well, could it be three percent or could it be four well, percent?" And if it was higher, of course, then it would mean that the central banks, if they believe the only way to get inflation down is through, uh, through uh, you know, pushing up interest rates, they would have to act less forcefully, perhaps, if they're happy to see inflation a bit higher. Well, it's actually, there's another arbitrary reason as to why the two percent target came along, and that's known as the Taylor Rule. And this actually, pretty much the same time, brush was being brush in New Zealand. Uh, Taylor was being neoclassical in America. And what he argued was that if you look at what central banks have actually done as opposed to what they say they're doing, you can actually write a little equation that says the rate of interest uh, is going to be equal to the inflation rate plus the gap between actual output and what they see as optimal output divided by two plus the inflation rate minus two also divided by two plus two. I'm actually looking at the equation uh, from the a paper called Applying Academic Research on Monetary Policy Rules from Taylor back in 1998. And he came up with this rule in 1993. And it's, that's where the 2% came from. So they said, if we look at what we've done, we've been targeting a 2% rate of inflation. Let's now make this part of our formal rules. And what turned up with the, uh, the, the mathematical models that economists ultimately developed that allegedly said how they could control, fine-tune the economy, these things, dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models, they actually have this equation as part of their setting. So the rate of interest should be the equal to the rate of inflation uh, plus uh, uh, half the gap between the actual rate of growth and the ideal rate of growth, half the gap between the actual inflation rate and 2%, plus 2%. And it, it, is, it is completely arbitrary, uh, as you say, and built into a theory that says that what causes inflation is expectations of inflation. So this is why I see all this waffling on about the need to anchor yeah. inflationary expectations as if what people are actually doing is not going out there in the marketplace and, you know, buying and selling and bartering and, uh, and, and haggling over the price. They are simply sitting in equilibrium and they're expect because they expect prices to rise by 2% or 3% or 4% per year, they're putting up their prices uh, while their markets remain in equilibrium. And this is the thinking, this is all the polluted thinking coming out of uh, Milton Friedman's argument about what causes inflation uh, back in his paper on the optimal, optimal quantity of money. But the 2% side of it itself is just because this was the arbitrary number that when, when he did a regression, this is what Taylor found sort of fitted the, the previous behaviour of central banks and said, let's make it the actual rule. But how much, I wonder if it was 3%. You sound totally confused. No, no, no. I mean, no, it sort of makes sense, but it's, yeah. a re it's retrofitting, isn't it? And I wonder, you know, you could just effectively retrofit a formula based on, yeah. on 3%, couldn't you, or 4%. So, and this, this, this idea that, you know, we all, uh, we're all expecting 2% because that's the target. I mean, it's never two percent. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's either above, below well, or above. Well, yeah. and there's, there's, it's very rarely well above and well below. But this, they, they nonetheless they're aiming for a bullseye on a moving on a moving target, and they're always shooting at the two percent level. But it's actually quite. I was actually read part of this paper by 
by Taylor when he explains how the how the equation came about. And he said uh, he took the, the annual inflation rate as a measure of inflation and the deviation from real GDP from trend as the real output measure. And then he fitted, fitted it together and found this is the overall equation. He said, it's certainly simple. Only two variables, these are the rate of interest uh, and the rate of inflation, no lags, and the numerical coefficients are easy to remember, brackets, all the numbers are twos. The target inflation rate is 2%, the guess at the real interest rate is 2%, and the weights of inflation and real output are one half and one half. Uh, just disentangling that a bit. This is where I say the two, three, four number comes in. They think the rate of inflation should be 2%, the rate of growth should be 3%, and the rate of interest should be 4%. And that 4% nominal rate gives you a 2% real rate. And that's just locked into their thinking. And of course, what's been happening, they've been aiming this target and the bull and, and the, 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 you know, the, the, the dartboard they're shooting for has been bouncing either side of the 2% uh, before we had uh, the, 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 uh, the Vokler high levels of inflation, uh, interest rates in, the, in the, 70, the 80s and also the globalization in China reducing costs. The inflation was well above it. It then trended down, really under the influence of globalization and rising private debt levels, rather than what the central banks were doing, to below two percent. It stayed below that level, and now it's bounced up again. And there, you know, it, it, it is really a case of. And you know, I see these guys as basically being, well, what the what the chicken running into the sky is falling in the sky and falling, chicken little. Yeah, chicken little. Uh, yeah, but they're all they're all. They're all ch chicken littles pretending they're in control of the barnyard. Let's go. Let's go back before COVID. If 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 the uh, central banks had said, uh, you know, in the United States, for example, or Australia or the UK, if they'd said, right, the interest rate's going to be four percent, there's nowhere in the world the growth rate would be three percent and the inflation rate would be two percent, would it? The growth rate, the growth rate would be stagnant and the inflation would be minus something. I mean, there's. Yeah, uh, uh, and you don't need to look at the equation to to know that. And you know that's with a central bank. Uh, hat on, thinking that 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 equation just doesn't make sense, just doesn't stack up, does it? That four percent is quite these days with so much debt, which obviously is not factored into that equation. I sound more like you every day, Steve, but because we're all because we're all so highly leveraged, four percent these days is a very high interest rate for most people. They're going to lose their house on it. Well, what you've got is a completely inappropriate map of the real world being used by people who think they're managing the real world. That's fundamentally the problem. So they have the vision of the economy always tending towards equilibrium. Disturbances being random shocks and their role uh, as being to, uh, to anchor expectations people have of inflation that they think is what causes inflation. And it's completely irrelevant. What's been causing the deflation was the trend to globalization, uh, the, for a while cheaper energy supplies, which is now turning in, in reverse. But globalization, rising levels of private debt, which reduce the income share of the workers and which have led to uh, declining wage demands over time as well. Those are the factors in the real world that have been driving this, first of all, tendency towards falling interest rates. Then the financial crisis, they responded to that by putting rates down to zero, which gave us asset price inflation while consumer prices continued to be you know, pretty stagnant. And now we've got the rising cost of energy, the, the, the Iraq war, climate change all hitting at once, and they're still running these models in which those real world elements do not even appear. So, mm. it, you know, I, I, because, I, because it's all because it's all driven by inflation expectations. Yeah. So yeah. and let me. So on, this is how the Federal Reserve explains it on their website on the yeah. on the 2 percent target. 
inflation that is too low can weaken the economy. When inflation runs well below its desired level, households and businesses will come to expect this over time, pushing expectations for inflation in the future below the Federal Reserve's longer-run inflation goal. This can pull actual inflation even lower, resulting in a cycle of ever-lower inflation and inflation expectations. So can we go over that? So if inflation is low, too low, then our expectation is that it will go even lower, and that is going to pull inflation even lower itself. I don't quite understand why. If inflation is low, why do we all assume it's going to get even lower still? Well, they, 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 the models actually assume that when you decide to go shopping, you, uh, you, 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 you do so to maximise the utility of you and your descendants for the infinite future. Always top of mind. <laughs> this is what... Yeah. This is what this is the, always top of yeah. mind. What's going to happen to that generation They've, of your kids in twenty three yeah. sixty? They've got yeah. it right. They've got right. it in the right inside is, leg measurement with the right waist measurement. But I'm not quite sure I could buy it because I've got to think about my grandchildren. Uh, that's yeah. a grand, no, no, great, 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 great grandchildren. Mm. This is all the nonsense that neoclassical economists have done on for so long. And what we're now seeing is this all unraveling in circumstances that they had no expectation. Pardon the pun. They've ever seen themselves. Uh, you know, they're all climate change denialists. They don't understand the physical economy. They've ignored globalization. Right. But the, so this idea, makes- okay, but yeah, this idea though, I am expecting that because inflation is low, why is it going to get lower? Oh, because, because again, the, what they have you doing is being a rational agent. And by a rational agent, they mean somebody who can accurately prophesize the future. Okay, that's rational. Okay. Not, not prophetic, it's not being Nostradamus, it's not being Jesus Christ, that's being simply rational as they define it in their models. Then with that rational expectation, you are trying to maximise your expected utility over the infinite future. You know, you're not going to live forever, but what you're doing, because you're altruistic, and believe it or not, altruism plays a part in these arguments. You are altruistically deciding if the interest rate is... Uh, the inter- if the inflation inter- rate. Inflation is, is, is too low um, to be consuming less now to save more in the future for future generations. I mean, it is a, it, it's, it's, it's cod swallowed. The whole damn thing is just... A, I'm, a still, I'm, still, I'm still trying to understand. So I think yeah. the inflation rate yeah. is low now. Yeah. Uh, so, the, so, so money is not going to be increasing in, in, in value so much. So I should save up. Is that what we're saying? I shouldn't well, spend... The, the, what, what the, you've got to go back to looking at how um, Milton Friedman destroyed the concept of the Phillips curve back in a paper called The Optimal Quantity of Money to understand where this stuff comes from. So what Friedman argued was that governments, what governments attempt to do, first of all, he says governments have been completely in control of the money supply, which is bullshit, but that's, again, neoclassical bullshit. So you assume the government can completely control the money supply. This is where the idea of helicopters flying over the country and dropping notes out of the helicopter come from. The helicopter is the government, which is independent of the market economy, and its rate of dropping money out of the helicopters is what's causing the rate of growth of the money supply. Now, they started, Milton Friedman's argument was that... Uh, uh, the, the economy starts in a point of long-run equilibrium. Uh, again, this is used to deconstruct Keynes over the Great Depression when unemployment was 25 bloody percent. But that, that's, you know, we've got to leave the real world out of this. So they start off by saying the economy is in a state of, real, of long-run equilibrium. All markets are in balance. Supply equals demand. People who want a job have got a job. The employment market is also fully employed by a neoclassical definition. Uh, and that then gives you a zero rate of inflation and the optimum 
unemployment rate, where the unemployment is just what you'd call frictional unemployment. That's your equilibrium point. Is that then the government increases the rate of growth of the money supply. Now, the initial response to people, according to Milton Friedman's way of thinking, was this would uh, lead people to think, well, the monetary demand has risen, therefore real demand has risen, and I really worry about real demand, not money demand. So because real demand has risen, I'm going to work harder. And therefore, GDP rises, unemployment falls below that equilibrium point. But what people then come to realise is, well, it was just nominal uh, demand. It wasn't real it's because the money supply is rising too much. So what happens is you shift back to this long-run equilibrium point, but with a higher rate of inflation. So what he, what he said is, to, what you want to reach is the point they call NARU, which stands for non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And this is where the whole idea that if you have, uh, in, if you have prices rising by more than, uh, if you have the government creating money faster than the economy is actually growing, that is going to give you accelerating inflation. And what they're arguing in the opposite direction, which is what you've been talking about a moment ago, is accelerating deflation. So it all comes down to this idea that there's some equilibrium value of the rate of inflation and the rate of unemployment, where you have a constant unemployment rate that's full employment for the economy, while you have no change in the rate of inflation. So their logic got them to believing that you either hit that point or you had accelerating inflation on one side or accelerating deflation on the other. None of this is true. Right. But that's them. Well, mind. when we come back, I want to uh, I, I want to have a look at uh, why banks are interested in what this what this percentage point is, what this target is, but also more generally the good and bad of inflation. So we'll have a look at that next. This is the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Back in a second. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, uh, we were looking at that non-accelerating rate of inflation, um, which has always confused me. I think you, you've, you've explained it fairly well. Um, and the point- it, It's a shimmer. It, 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 it's another myth of neoclassical economists. This is the problem. Mm. Uh, we've, got a bunch of, we've got a bunch of loonies who are equivalent to Ptolemaic astronomers trying to work out why meteors are falling on the planet uh, in a model in which the Earth is perfect in the centre of the universe, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're really trying to do is unravel the Ptolemaic model of a, of a Copernican 
uh, universe. That's why it sounds up so damn crazy. But isn't the biggest weakness in all of that is this, uh, you know, this uh, this understanding that everyone supposedly has about what the uh, what the supply of money is in the economy, and, and also, in a, you know, the understanding of of what inflation is and and where they think it's going to go next. We're putting putting a lot of uh, rational uh, behavior in the hands of the consumer who is an, an irrational being. Isn't that the part of the problem with all of these models? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is what frustrates the hell of me out of this mob because uh, they don't even see how their own theories have shifted over time. Because if you go back to where um, neoclassical economic, economics banned, we began, which is back in the 1870s with the work of, uh, of Jevons and Walras and Menger. And Jevons was really the one who gave us the, the, the mainstream theory of of uh, neoclassical economics, all this utility maximizing, blah, blah, blah. But Walras gave us the idea of multiple markets interacting in equilibrium uh, uh, or, or reaching equilibrium over time. Now, in, each, in the early models, and this is particularly re- relevant to Volra's work, you had the idea of dumb consumers and a market, the market having the intelligence. So Volra's vision was you'd start with a, a random set of prices, which would cause supply to be above or below demand in almost all markets. You would not have equilibrium. And then the market maker, what he called the auctioneer, the Volrasian auctioneer, would change prices, putting prices up where demand was too high, reducing prices where demand was too low to converge towards equilibrium over time. Now, mathematically, that process does not work. And Volra tried to get the backing of Poincaré to support him over this. And the great mathematician Poincaré refused to support Volra, saying he thought that was actually false. And it turned out later mathematics shows that it was false. Long digression in one sense. But what it means is their initial model had a smart market and dumb consumers. Now, because of this dilemma that that didn't actually reach equilibrium, you had a whole range of fudges done about that. You had fudges about the demand curve when they found they couldn't derive it, a market demand curve from individual demand curves, yada, yada, yada. Over time, what this meant was, rather than saying we have a smart market and dumb consumers, ended up saying we have a dumb market and incredibly intelligent consumers who can predict the future. And then trying to manage the behaviour of these people who could predict the future became what neoclassical economists think they're doing. And as I said, it's a bunch of angels dancing on pins and the pins are orbiting in a, in a Ptolemaic universe which does not exist. But that's why this stuff sounds so crazy. So this 2% target that they've got, the fact that it is so low, because 2% inflation is quite a low level of inflation. And we'll look at the pros and cons of uh, you know an economy where it's higher in, in just a second. But because they're targeting that 2% and we're in a situation where we are now, where uh, interest rates are rising and inf- inflation is well above that, you know, in double digits in, in many places. It's a long way to take it down to 2%. Uh, and central banks are thinking, well, we have to push even harder on, on interest rates uh, to crazy levels to, to try and get it down to 2%. So what they're saying is we've got to destroy jobs, d- destroy people's spending. Amounts to the same thing, obviously. Uh, we've got to get demand way, way, way down if we're going to get to that 2% target. Uh, so to get that demand down, we basically need to destroy demand. Uh, and we, you know, by pushing up uh, interest rates higher and higher. Uh, so we all come out of this uh, worse off. It w- they wouldn't need to act quite as hard if they said, well, actually, our target is 4%. Uh, the, the, yeah. you, might, you might save a few yeah. jobs uh, if, if they had a higher target. What's wrong with just saying, well, 2% is ridiculous, let's go for 4 instead? 
Yeah, what they should be doing at the moment rather than trying to do the impossible by trying to control the rate of inflation using interest rates when it's being driven up by cost of production. Mm. As we said in the last podcast, by the capacity of manufacturers to put up their markups when there's such a level of monetary demand around at the moment. Uh, it's all going to be, you know, it's going to fall apart in a chaotic fashion, but that's that's the current well, situation. Just on, just on that, but, if, they, if they didn't move interest rates yeah. at all and they just said, well, okay, if prices go up, people will buy less, it's going to, it's, it, you, it's going to self-regulate in a way. Wouldn't it be better just to do nothing at all? I think it would be better if they did nothing at all, frankly. Yes, I do. Uh, I think the interest rate manoeuvres are nonsense. And what, what they're going to do is cream asset markets. Now that that I don't mind, frankly, because we're such overvalued asset markets. But that could cause a financial crisis at some point, when, uh, particularly with the shadow the shadow banking sector, if the value of their assets plunges, then suddenly we could be back in the same situation where, you know, as, as we saw from the two thousand and eight crisis when. Uh, Morgan Stanley was on the brink and rang up, uh, what's his name, um, Hank Paulson, who was treasurer at the time, and said, you've got to do something. Uh, our assets are plunging in value. We're, we're in serious crisis here. And Hank asked, how long have we got? And the answer was about three hours. So, yeah. you know, so it could I be in the same. Well, it would certainly, it would certainly I mean, uh, the, the, the other thing is, you know, people have just can't afford their mortgages if it gets too high. And that's and that's you- the real danger. That's the real danger. Mm. We could see... A collapse in the housing market when people couldn't maintain their mortgages, and then uh, because so many people got sucked into taking out mortgages with low interest rates, uh, they're the ones who are really going to be crippled by the rising cost of energy and by the rising cost of maintaining their mortgage. So, but you see, central banks love that. They, I mean, the central bank thinking, where they sit in their ivory tower, where they're not impacted by any of these things personally, would say, "Well, that's good because if house prices come down, uh, then the wealth effect people, uh, you know, people who, who manage to hang on to their houses." don't feel quite as well off because, uh, you know, because they don't have the, the same asset values uh, uh, sitting on their patch of land, uh, we'll, we'll think, OK, we'll, we'll cut back on our demand. We'll spend less because we don't feel as wealthy because our house isn't worth as much. But that, they'd love that. that. Could also, that could, but that could also, yeah, they'd love it and they'd be wrong because at the same time that could end up reducing, increasing prices because, again, again because they've got a false model. We should actually talk about some of this background stuff again in a few mm. future podcasts, but they have a model in their in their minds where the cost of production per unit rises with volume. In fact, it falls with volume. Now, if we have uh, people being forced to cut back on in, in, in their consumption because of the impact of high interest rates on their mortgage... Push up the, 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 unit, push up the unit cost unit, of goods. Unit price could yeah. rise even further. So rather mm, than this more stuff... Inflation. Ending up, mm. With more inflation. Now, there, there is a sense... The, the, the crazy thing in it all this that there is a sensible role for a small amount of inflation in a monetary economy when you can temporarily leave out the impact of private debt on the whole situation, which is one of the driving factors they ignore. But this is the reason the gazillion currency worked during the Second World War, because the currency which depreciates has an encouragement on the holder of the currency to spend that currency. So yeah. if you have... If you have and like when you take a look at the American data, on, in particular, on the velocity of circulation of money, through the 50s and 60s, the rate of turnover of money compared to the GDP, which is what gives you the velocity measure, was about 1.8. So uh, if every dollar turned, up one, turned over 1.8 times per year. When you had the rising inflation under, uh, before the Vocler period came in, that actually rose to three. 
So what you had the money was turning over three times per year rather than 1.8 times per year, which is partially where the inflation itself came from. But it's but the the rate of inflation encourages a higher level of spending. And when you look at what the role of money is in a capitalist economy or money in any economy, one of the roles of money is to enable transactions to occur. So if the value of the money is falling, that it gives you a sort of hot potato effect that people spend more rapidly, and and that. Uh, Overall, so that's a, that's the, a useful side. So if inflation is, I don't know what point that would... That's a useful side effect of inflation, yeah. yeah so, and I'm not yeah. quite sure if you have any idea what sort of percentage rate that would be where I'm incentivized to think, well, I'm going to buy this new car. I'll think I'll buy it next year when I'm feeling a bit richer. But I know it's going to be 5% more expensive next year or 10% more expensive next year. I'm, I'm going to buy it now. Any idea what sort of level that would be? Would it be five percent? No, but if you but but it'd be, we'd have to have a look and let's talk about the Gazellian experiment at some stage and see what they actually did in that currency because the whole idea there was you had a collapse in the credit uh, market system in in Europe. Uh, was Germany and Austria were as bad as America in terms of the depth of the depression in the 1930s. Unemployment hit 25 percent, and in the town of Wargel in Austria. Mm. The mayor was a fan of the work of Silvio Gazelle, yeah. who argued that money should depreciate as a matter of... of, of uh, you know, we have done a podcast on this a while back, if you go searching... Let's in do the, it again, because it's... Mm, yeah, the work looks... Time, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and, the, the, I guess the other side as well, apart from the fact that it's an incentive for you to spend sooner, uh, if you've got a reasonably high level of inflation, is that if you've got debt as, as well, of course, it, it, uh, in, inflation will effectively reduce that debt for reduce you. Reduce your debt level. And that's what happened back in '75. But you look back at the we, we actually the first major uh, private debt crisis globally was 1973 to '75. You had a huge credit boom and then a bust in that particular period. But at the same time, you had the rising inflation from the very high employment levels of the uh, of the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, and the impact of the Vietnam War as well on on costs. And that that inflation eroded the debt burden. So the debt, the debt to GDP ratio fell, even though private debt was still rising, because the rising inflation reduced the outstanding value of private debt. So, uh, and this is one thing Minsky talked about, he said, you, you, and, and so did, and so did uh, Irving Fisher back in the Great, uh, during the Great Depression, that what you need to have a, a debt deflationary crisis is both a rate of a high level of private debt, but also falling prices, because falling prices amplify the debt level. Now, if you have the opposite and you have rising prices, then rising prices are reducing that debt burden. So in that sense, inflation in a credit-based economy is a, is a form of automatic stabiliser, not a, not a good one, but it nonetheless can prevent you falling into a debt deflation. And that's something you know, that's why the reason I call my blog debtdeflation.com all those years ago. You don't want to get caught in a debt deflation. And the one positive we can say over the last 30 years is we haven't experienced debt deflation, that we came damn close after the 2008 crisis. So the the, the problem, of course, is if, if people's income doesn't uh, keep pace with the level of inflation, because then we get, which is what we're seeing now, growing income imbalance. So that's one of the downside impacts of uh, of inflation getting too high. But you could just legislate that, couldn't you? Couldn't actually just say, well, okay, by law, from now, uh, the, uh, the the rate of pay, everybody's rate of pay has to increase by at least the rate of inflation. That would solve that problem. Well, you had... And the, the, well, the downside I mean, might be companies would go, okay, but that means now people are getting, uh, you know, when inflation's going up, people are getting uh, too expensive to employ. 
therefore we're going to get rid of these people. Uh, but the central banks would love that. They'd say, my God, you're weakening no, demand for labour. You're, you're doing what we're trying to do. They, they would hate it, actually, because they're all neoclassical economists. They believe everything should be ruled by the market. They'd actually hate it vividly. But if you look back in the, Great in the Second World War, that was a large part of what was being done by people who actually had to manage the price level then to prevent inflation occurring, particularly J.K. Galbraith, who was uh, part of the price, and, uh, the, the, the price management system during the Second World War to stop inflation occurring domestically. So a large part of what they were doing is trying to find ways to take money out of the private sector. And that's what bond sales were for. The bond sales meant people, rather than having money to spend, had bonds earning an interest rate, war bonds. They thought they were actually providing the uh, the munitions for the fighting the Germans. What they were doing was taking money out of circulation and meaning that inflation didn't occur domestically. And you had an agreement about the distribution of income. Now, that's the last thing we have right now. And everything we're seeing is amplifying the trend for that in income to go further up the income scale rather than lower down. And of course, the real dilemma we face right now, which could lead to real conflict, and we're seeing it happening with a, you know, a large number of of unions reforming and strikes starting to occur again globally as well, is that the workers who are, rather than having wage rises causing the inflation, the wage rises are well below inflation and they're already finding it hard to make ends meet. So they're now demanding wage rises to catch up with that. And if you don't do something about it, you could see quite serious social breakdowns start to occur. Mm. Uh, that's partially what seems to be behind some of the riots in Iran right now, as well as the whole uh, thing about women being forced to wear the veil. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, if, if you start seeing a serious immiserization of the already poor uh, when they've been screwed over for the last 20 or 30 years anyway, uh, it doesn't make for a cohesive society. No. Well, there's that argument. And then just, you know, for uh, economic reasoning, if you, if you were to say to every company, you have to pay your workers... Uh, more each year based on whatever the rate of inflation is. Some companies might go, well, we can't afford to do that, uh, so we're going to automate those jobs. So they, you know, you could say, well, okay, it's bad news for the person who lost their job. We hope they get another one, but at least you're automating something, so you're increasing your productivity. You'd say that's a good economic outcome. If you are finding a lot of people losing their jobs because inflation is is pushing uh, uh, the, the costs for, for companies too high, then uh, that is what central banks are trying to achieve by putting up interest rates. People are losing their jobs. You're weakening demand, so you're not getting uh, uh, as as much. You're softening demand for goods. Uh, therefore, uh, inflation is going to start coming back down again without the central banks stepping in. Anyway, just a just a thought. The reason why uh, central banks are going at this two percent target. Another reason is uh, is because if it's too low. If the target rate is too low, uh, then they don't have room to move. So, you know, they, they're using interest rates to to, uh, to try and control inflation. But if, uh, if, the, if the target gets too low, they've got less room to move. So... Uh, well, 2% two, two is already very low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just when they thought they were going to... You know, they thought they were, they thought they were honing in on the target back in two, 2007, and then the financial crisis hit, which... You know, completely upset their apple car but they're still hanging on to this two percent level yeah so and they should throw it out yeah they should but whatever this target rate is banks aren't very good at it if we look at the uk um you know it's it's it 
where have, where's inflation been? You know, we started uh, a year ago. It was about 0.7%. Go back a few years. It was around 25 or 2.7%. Mm. We had a couple of years, 2016 and 2017, when um, the, the very low inflation. There's been absolutely no stability in you know, just in the UK in the inflation rate. Uh, and that is the same around the world. So when they, they start to talk about, you know, having this 2% target so people can plan with confidence, yeah, right. I mean, it, yeah, it's, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's never. It, it's it's, it's never, never. You know, ne- you're lucky it never, if it hits two percent. Yeah, it's never, never been there. It's just again, this. You know, it's it's part of the the music of the spheres for these guys. It's one of their delusional numbers. It's part of their uh, view of how the economy operates. They're completely wrong. But because they are seen as the experts on the economy, they're in charge of setting these rates, and we therefore live at their mercy. And <laughs> they, they don't have much mercy because to have be, be merciful, you've got to know what the hell you're doing. So should they have a higher target or should they just not have a target at all? I mean, doesn't inflation sort of correct itself eventually anyway? If people go, if, if prices go up, people stop buying. Or is that a bit naive? But I mean, that's, you know. Well, because again, you've got, mac, you've got macroeconomic impacts of it turning up as well. It isn't just a case of, you know, put up the prices and people will buy less so that'll stabilise. Uh, but it, it's just that they've got an incomplete model. They don't. They don't actually have money in their model. And this is the weird thing. What they're talking about is the rate of inflation, and they don't actually have money as part of their models. So it, it's all totally crazy. And I think I hope this is letting people realise what happens when you let a bunch of neoclassical economists take over anything. It's. Uh, it's. It, it, they. They would continue talking about ethereal things like a Nehru and. Uh, a Taylor rule, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to give the stability that the system itself doesn't have. So Krugman, your uh, arch enemy, oh, yeah. <laughs> 1997, you might agree with him on this, though. Uh, I've heard, I've seen this quote. I've been trying to find the original article, but I've seen it quoted oh, at least 10 or 15 times in different places. This is a quote. One of the yeah. dirty little secrets of economic analysis is that even though inflation is universally regarded as a terrible scourge, Efforts to measure its costs come up with embarrassingly small numbers. So he seems to be saying, well, it can be higher. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only the, the, the real argument about inflation being uh, uh, having a serious impact in the economy, uh, you, you found you had much higher levels of inflation, not, not as high as we had in the 70s, admittedly, but high levels of inflation in the 50s and 60s than we have now. Before before the most recent surge, and quite you know comfortable economic conditions. Uh, so the obsession about inflation, if you have to see any social group that benefits out of this, it's the finance sector, mm. because inflation reduces the value of, of the the real value of, of of nominal assets, and they want to keep those values high. So in that sense, even though they're not uh, you know being bought by the financial sector, everything they're doing benefits the financial sector over the real economy. So should they have a target or not in central banks? They should have a range. And they say, like I think anything below 10%, I think if they say 8%, 7%, something of that scale, they shouldn't be worried about it. Uh, and and the, if you look back and see... They, so they range. should have stuck to their original position, which was oh, the inflation that we're seeing right now is transient because of supply sides. They should yeah. have stuck to their guns on that rather than panicking. Yeah, and what they're doing by panicking, they, 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 they're seeing a control mechanism that doesn't exist. So by putting out the interest rate, interest rate up, they think they're putting interest rate 
well above inflationary expectations, which will then cause us to get to the point where rather than having accelerating inflation, we have decelerating inflation and fall back towards equilibrium once more. That ain't going to happen. So Ben Bernanke's argument when he was asked about whether uh, he was, of course, the chair of the Fed in 2006 to 2014, his response when he was asked, you know, what, what if you set the rate at, at 4%, what, w- what would happen then? And he said, well, if you said it at 4%, everyone would expect inflation to be at 4%. Because, you know, ask my mum, she's hanging off what the uh, the target range is from, from the central bank uh, when she goes shopping. But yeah, if you said it at 4%, everyone's going to expect inflation is going to be at 4%. Therefore, inflation would be higher and probably more volatile, he says. Clearly, not noticing how volatile it is on a, on a 2% target. But that's a bit crazy, isn't it? If they, if they set the target higher, then by, by that, the, the expectation means inflation will automatically be higher because everyone's expecting it to be higher. Mm. And, and that's, again, the, the, the spherical way of thinking, you know, the, the, the crystalline spheres on which the economy spins. Uh, it's, it's all coming out of their fallacious theory of how the economy actually operates, not what we've seen for practical experience in the real world. And for practical experience in the real world, inflation below about 5 or 6% doesn't do much damage. Uh, it probably encourages a higher level of spending uh, than, than a lower one. Uh, you can live with that. So the, 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 the fetish, making 2% into a fetish, means they're going to unwind a large part of what they did wrongly in the last decade, which is driving up asset prices uh, by... The, the, by the policy of low interest rates, encouraging people to take up uh, debt to buy financial assets, thereby causing a financial bubble, they're going to burst their own bubble. And that's the one thing I'm going to enjoy about watching this. Do you know what? I wonder whether you and Krugman, if you were to get together on this, you might you might find some common ground. Don't push it. <laughs> we'll leave it there for now. Uh, good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again next time. Thanks. Okay, mate. Bye. And just to show that some organisations are not thinking the same way as central banks, the latest trade and development report this week out from the UN Conference on Trade and Development uh, highlights how inflation is being driven by supply difficulties in their mind and continued monetary tightening, the report says, through rising central bank rates and the normalisation of their balance sheets will have little impact on the supply sources of inflation and instead will work to re-anchor inflationary expectations. So there, they're making matters worse. But will central banks listen? Of course not. Now, next time, the cost of borrowing. What impacts do rising rates have on business and on government and are they really necessary so we'll be getting to grips with what exactly interest rates mean next time on the debunking economics podcast thanks for listening today the debunking economics podcast mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.